Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Song of Songs and find chapter 2. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5 this evening. Just a little point of reference for you. Perhaps some of you have noticed, I imagine many have not, the sermon titles that we've had throughout this sermon series have been the titles of songs in our hymnal that have something to do with love. And so I do want to commend them to you to take a look back through them, find yourself a hymnal, and uh, read those lyrics of those hymns and be encouraged by what they say about Christ's love for us. Well, with the Word of God open, let's pray and ask for His help this evening, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we approach again this poem, this love song, this song of all songs, we ask that you would help us. Help us to interpret it rightly, to understand its importance and significance in the Christian church, especially in this day and age in which we live. I pray, Lord, especially for the young people who are here this evening, who are making their way into adulthood as they think about romance and relationships and passion and intimacy and all these things. Lord, would you grant to them biblical wisdom about these topics, that they might walk uprightly before you, that they might enjoy all of the blessings that you've given to them, that you've granted in marriage and in God-honoring relationship. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wonderful things contained in your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Excuse me. Uh, Song of Songs, I'll begin in chapter 2, verse 8. And we'll read through chapter 3, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. Please take heed how you hear it. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rocks, and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love 
until it pleases. Amen. This thus, thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, recently, a young-ish American actress said that she finds it quite strange, unhealthy even, for a man in his 40s to have had less than four sexual partners. She said that if she were dating such a man, she would want to know why he had been so sexually inactive, as if he were somehow deficient. We live in a culture that tells us that nothing should wait, and we should wait for nothing. Food is fast. Internet is faster. Movies don't even wait to get to the theater before Amazon offers them at a hefty price. It's like the words of that great 1970s philosopher, Veruca Salt, who once said, I want the world, I want the whole world, I want to lock it all up in my pocket, it's my bar of chocolate, give it to me now. Waiting for anything is seen as strange, antiquated, backwards, unhealthy, and otherwise silly, especially when it comes to sex. My dear young people who are here this evening, this is the world in which you live But the Bible wants you to know that there are some things worth waiting for. And in our text this evening, we see that physical intimacy is one of those things. It's worth waiting for, and it's worth waiting for the context for which it was designed by God, and that's marriage. In this passage, we read of the woman's longing for her beloved and his longing for her. They simply cannot wait to consummate their marriage. Their desire to experience the joys of intimacy invade their conversations and even their dreams. You know, in all my years of providing premarital counseling to couples, especially young couples, one thing has proven to be true across the board. Waiting for the wedding night is difficult. Young couples always seem to have a strong desire for the wedding night to arrive. It's one of the things that they anticipate the most, and that's normal, isn't it? That's normal. It's part of God's design for marriage that we experience the joy of physical intimacy. There's nothing wrong with that desire. There's nothing wrong with this young couple here in the Song of Songs who want to be together. The poetry that we just read is unapologetically dripping with romantic language, isn't it? But what we see here is a kind of biblical wisdom that is manifestly lacking, not only in our culture, but I would suggest that it is lacking in so many Christian dating and courting relationships. And so this evening, I want us to consider three things that biblical wisdom commends to us concerning love and intimacy. Three things that the Bible suggests wise people do when it comes to love and intimacy. Number one, biblical wisdom commends passionate longing. The Bible commends passionate longing. Biblical wisdom commends perceptive caution. And finally, biblical wisdom, wisdom commends a proper context. Now, I'm sure you notice the unapologetic way that the songwriter acknowledges the deep longing this couple has for one another. There's no hiding their passion and desire. Even the poetic language is clear what they're talking about what they want to do, how they want to be with each other. She envisions her her love leaping over the mountains and bounding to her. He's like a young gazelle. He's waiting. They speak about the flowers on earth appearing. The time for love is near. The turtle dove is heard in the land. The fig tree is ripe. 
This language puts most of us to shame, doesn't it? How many of us speak in such romantic terms? And we have this sort of dialogue that goes back and forth between them, and she begins by describing her love in terms that seem best applied only to Superman. Leaping over mountains, bounding over tall hills, racing past speeding bullets and stopping locomotives. She likens him to a majestic creature that runs faster than any of the other creatures of the field, and he overcomes any and all obstacles just to be near her, just to catch a glimpse, all without any concern for his own safety or health. I imagine many of you can remember feeling like this. Some of you are probably feeling like this right now, willing to walk 500 miles and then maybe walk 500 more just to be with the one that you love. The songs will continue. And then he arrives at her window in verse 9. See, in verse 9, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. It's like that romantic movie about the young boy who loves his girl, and in the middle of the night, he's standing on her front lawn, throwing pebbles at her window, trying to get her attention so he can sing to her the song of his love, which he wrote for her. And in verse 10 through 14, this young man, Solomon here in our text, plainly tells his love of his desire, his longing to be with her. Twice he says, come away with me. Come away with me. He knows that the time for love is at hand. Winter is over. Spring has arrived. The flowers are in bloom. It is, such as it were, the time to be fruitful and multiply. And once again, he affirms, once again, he affirms his physical attraction to her, doesn't he? This is the same woman who described herself back in chapter 1 as sun-kissed and dark, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Her inability to care for her own appearance because of her hard upbringing, which has forced her out in the field, forced her to tend to the vineyard of her family, and she has not been able to keep up herself. And yet he here applies this language of, of great attraction to her. He says, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He finds her more attractive than all the women in the world. His love for her causes her face to shine with beauty in his eyes, her voice to ring with melody in his ears, and her absence to fill him with the energy needed to run across mountains and hills to be with her. Men. This is... Biblical love for the woman God has given you. To have eyes only for her. To have ears only for her voice. And to have a heart filled with love only for her. Biblical romance, it's so plain in this text, is passionate and it is longing. It wants to be with the one that it loves it wants to be near and close to the one that God has given it. And it is unashamed of such desire. Do you remember Adam's declaration at seeing his wife Eve for the first time? We mentioned this a few weeks ago. What does Adam say when he sees Eve standing there? He says, at last, this is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one that was made for me and I for her. But it's important to remember that biblical love is not infatuated with any and all options, 
but rather it is passionate about the proper partner that God has given it. It does not settle by lusting after lesser options. Adam, you see, was not infatuated with any of the animals, even the ones that looked most like him. And Solomon here is not infatuated with lesser women than his love. Rather, biblical love is passionately, intensely, romantically, and longingly desirous of the right one for him or for her. It's a God-given blessing to be made as creatures with such desires. It's part of what makes marriage so enjoyable. It's a part of what makes marriage so enjoyable. But we fall into sin when we allow our passions to go uncontrolled and unfocused. So young people, many of you young people here this evening who are in dating relationships or perhaps desire to be so, you're preparing for marriage or thinking that marriage is only a few years down the road. Perhaps some of you who are older and not yet in a relationship, it's easy to find ourselves growing intensely passionate after people of the opposite sex, perhaps experiencing all the longing described here, but outside of the proper context. We find ourselves willing to entertain any option that might promise to fulfill us sexually, but not biblically. You remember what we said a few weeks ago, that intimacy divorced from character will only lead to disaster. God intends for his people to be yoked together with other believers. And so I want to caution you, especially young men and young women, against a willingness to date people who don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very important for you, especially as you get older and you find your options getting smaller and you find your passions burning hotter, and your desire to be married intensifying, it's easy for that, that passion to boil over into lust, and your willingness to accept anyone who crosses your path rather than the right one who crosses your path designed by God. It's a danger that you face But the Bible cautions us from allowing our God-given passions to accept any option. And let me say this even more strongly if I can. It is not just unwise. It is downright dangerous. It is downright dangerous for Christian boys and girls to pursue relationships outside of Christ and outside of the Christian church. It is playing with fire. And people who play with fire all have scars. This is exactly the second point that the songwriter makes in our text this evening. That passionate longing, excuse me, does not negate perceptive caution. There's a perceptive caution that goes hand in hand together with this passion that God has put in us to be in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, someone that God has given for us. The problem is it's about having the first, that passionate longing, without the second, that perceptive caution that gets young couples into trouble. Perhaps some of you are thinking, I certainly have passionate longing, but I'm not so good at patiently waiting or perceiving the threats. Let me encourage you then with some more biblical wisdom about relationship. In verses 15 through 17, this couple, Solomon and his Shulamite love, they recognize that there are threats to their relationship He tells her in verse 15, perhaps this is her telling him, the quotation marks are obviously um, not inspired, and there are some 
different opinions about uh, who's speaking in verse 15. But whoever it is, they say this, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. The vineyard obviously is somewhat euphemistic uh, for their sexuality and their relationship. And then in verse 17, it says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, the shadows, those, those hidden areas where we don't quite know what's going on, where caution is to be commended. This is poetic language, but what we see here in these verses is that they are aware that in spite of the season, remember winter is gone, spring is here, the flowers are in bloom, the time has come, and in spite of their desire and longing for one another, which is in and of itself good, there are little foxes that might spoil their relationship. Now we saw a hint of this caution earlier in verse 9. Remember, she uses this uh, Superman language to describe her beloved. He comes leaping over the mountains and bounding over the hills. He's like a young gazelle or stag. And what does he do? He comes to the wall and looks through the window and through the lattice. Do you, you hear the caution there and his approach to the one that he wants? He doesn't rush into her bedroom, does he? He stops at the window. He talks to her from outside, from beyond the barrier of protection. And this is an important part of biblical wisdom when it comes to a proper God-honoring relationship before marriage. They wait. They wait. They don't push the barriers that are there between them. They don't cross the wall or open the window or climb the lattice such as it were. Of course, it's obvious to us that walls can be climbed and windows opened and foxes ignored. There's plenty of vineyards, so who cares if a little fox gets into one corner or another? After all, we've been waiting for a very long time, haven't we? Y'all know about Grandma's Chili? Y'all know Grandma's Chili? Grandma had the greatest chili recipe. It was just the right amount of spicy and sweet, and it was thick too. Not that watery stuff that falls off your spoon, but the sort of stuff that sticks to your spoon and to your bones. It went, mmm. You know we have a chili cook-off coming up in a couple weeks. This would have won it. It goes good on cornbread or over rice. Everyone wanted Grandma's chili. It won all the baking competitions at the retirement home and at the church. People would come from miles around to have some of Grandma's chili, but it was discovered one day that Grandma's chili had a secret ingredient. That secret ingredient was minced rat meat. Grandma said that one time she discovered that she was out of ground beef, but she saw a large dead rat trapped in a trap inside of the pantry, and rather than go to the store for fresh meat, it was, after all, uphill both ways and snowing. She just ground up the rat into the mix, and no one ever noticed. And from then on, rat was the key ingredient in her world-renowned chili. Now, let me ask you a question. Does anybody here want that chili? Would that information spoil your longing for her famous chili? I'll bet that it would. Yet our culture, young people wants to suggest to you that you can spoil your sexual experiences with the wrong ingredients and have no consequences. Biblical wisdom says notice the threats, 
to be perceptively cautious about moving too fast and too far and with the wrong person. Let's revisit this idea of windows that can be opened and walls that, be, that can be climbed. Solomon comes to the wall, and he has all the physical strength and ability to climb it. And he goes to the window, and he has all the physical ability and strength to go into it. And he comes to the lattice, and he has all the physical strength and ability to tear it down to get at his beloved. <clears throat> and the problem with so much of what passes for a Christian approach to sexual purity is that, in effect... Sometimes all we do is establish rules that shouldn't be broken rather than giving our young people the reasons for not breaking them. Here's what I mean. If we tell our young people don't have sex before marriage, which of course is biblical, without ever instructing our children why the Bible teaches this and what the consequences of ignoring this biblical wisdom are, then all we've done is built a wall that can be climbed or close the window that can be opened. But what we see in verses 9 and 15 and 17 is not boundaries that are not crossed, but rather an understanding that there are things that threaten God-honoring relationships and the application of wisdom in the life of this young couple, Solomon and the Shulamite woman. They perceive the threats, and they're employing biblical wisdom in their relationship. They know that God has designed sex for marriage, and it is only within the context of his design that they're able to experience the greatest satisfaction and the safety that a committed covenant relationship affords them. How much does your phone cost? I imagine, and I don't say this mockingly, that there are some of you here whose phones cost a handful of dollars. I know that among us that there are some who are still, and I, am, I say this as one jealous, using flip phones, and they don't cost that much. <clears throat> Most of us have some version of a, an Android or an iPhone that probably brand new, if you were to go to Verizon or AT&T today to buy it, would cost you about $1,000 or so in one lump payment, or you can break that up into $29.99 over the course of 24 months on your phone bill. Now, you would not spend $1,000 on a brand new phone and then attempt to turn it on by throwing it against the wall, would you? You wouldn't go to Verizon tonight after leaving here, buy a brand new iPhone 15 titanium, and use it as a doorstop. Of course you wouldn't. You'd use it according to the designer's instructions, and you would take care to treat it with all of the care that a $1,000 phone deserves. You wouldn't use it as a coaster. You wouldn't use it to clean up a mess. You wouldn't use it to scrape ice off your windshield. You would use it the way that the designer intended for you to use it in order for you to get all of the benefits from it, to be able to access all of the apps and communicate with people quickly and to use the wonderful camera that it comes with and all of these features that come with your $1,000 phone. And you would be a fool to try to turn it on by throwing it at the wall or to use it to prop open your door like a doorstop. So why do we treat sex like we're throwing our new phone at the wall? And why is our world teaching our children to do the same thing with their bodies? 
God has designed us to enjoy the pleasures of physical intimacy in the context of the institution for which it's been designed. That's marriage. And so Solomon and the Shulamite woman acknowledge that there are threats. They can't just throw the relationship at the wall, such as it were. They don't want to risk the joy of their consummation by stirring up love or awakening it until it pleases. You remember that phrase back in chapter 2, verse 7? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, until it's appropriate. He says, uh, she says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, <clears throat> that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who's she speaking to here? She's speaking to her contemporaries, isn't she? All the other women of Jerusalem. And so one of the ways that God has built into the church a sort of safety net for young couples experiencing the passionate longings of sexual desire, which he has put into us, is the accountability of the community. You know, when we baptize a covenant child right here at this font, we ask the parents to take four baptismal vows. And following that, we ask the members of our church to stand, don't we? And as members of this church, you and I together have vowed countless times just in recent history to assist these children or these parents, in bringing up these covenant children in the Christian nurture and instruction of God's Word. And that means accountability, doesn't it? That means that we love them enough to watch them when they're walking down the hall with their significant other, and to encourage them, men to young men and women to young women. Think of Titus chapter 2, teaching them how to be honorable with their bodies and in their relationships. That's what this woman longs for. She knows that she's young. She knows that she's immature. She knows that spring has just sprung. She's not in summer or autumn yet. She's a young lady desirous of the passionate relationship with her beloved. And she says to her contemporaries, help me not cross the line. Help me. Help me not cross the line. Young people, if you're secretly involved in relationships outside the view of your friends or your parents, or if you have the sort of friends who are encouraging you to have secret relationships, you need to get away from those friends and find some new ones who love you enough to tell you to wait so you don't ruin what God has given you. And this is really the third point that we want to make this evening. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where it tells us that biblical wisdom commends the proper context for passionate intimacy. We see here this Shulamite woman asleep at night, night by night, dreaming about her beloved, longing to be with him. Night by night, she searches for her love. She uses this term four times in verses 1 through 4, him whom my soul loves, she says, him whom my soul loves. Verse 3, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Verse 4, I found him whom my soul loves. She's dreaming about being with him. That's how much she longs to be with the one that God has designed for her. 
And she can't find him for a while, and there's a tale of caution here. Sometimes, and those of us who have been married for some time now, know that love can be difficult. And it can be scary sometimes. And it requires hard work, doesn't it? Marriage requires work. All good things do. And sometimes it feels like you're far away from the one you love, and they're on the distant side of the city, and you have to go after them. And that's exactly what she does. She leaves the safety of her home in this dream and wanders about the city streets and in the squares, seeking the one she loves. Even the watchmen of the city find her and say, what are you doing out here at night? It's dangerous for you, young lady. But she's after the one that she loves in this dream, and she does eventually find him in verse 4. And what does she do when she finds him? She brings him into her home, into the chamber in which she herself was conceived. It says, into my mother's room. Now, this might strike us as a bit odd, but let's remember the biblical context. This ought to make us think of Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 24, doesn't it? Isaac's mother, Sarah, has died, and he is in grief over the loss of his mother, and his father's servant finds Rebekah at his uncle's well, and he brings her back. And as they're riding across the field, she sees him out in the field meditating. And then she comes to him, and they go into his mother's tent, it says, and he's comforted in his grief. <clears throat> now, what's happening there? Of course, there's intimacy going on behind the tent curtain, and the writers of both Genesis and the Song of Songs don't intend to give us a peek behind the curtain. But what we know, what we understand by the context is that Isaac marries Rebekah. She becomes his one flesh wife. They enter into covenant union together. And this is the same longing that our Shulamite maiden has for Solomon in her dream. She longs to be finally married to him, the one whom her soul loves. That's why she envisions bringing him into the chamber, bringing him into the bedroom, and not in order to consummate their lust, but their marriage, the biblical idea here. And this is the proper context for passion to find its fulfillment. After all the cautions have been heeded and patience has been exercised and longing has reached its conclusion, marriage is the setting in which God intends for his people to experience the joy of intimacy, the fulfillment of their passionate longings. But the Bible says more about sexual fulfillment and intimacy than it should be found in marriage, doesn't it? It tells us that the way intimacy is found and is fulfilling is through the process of leaving and cleaving. And that's what we see here in these verses. She longs to find her man, and when she does, she brings him into her chamber for them to form a new family together. Now, parents of some of our growing young people, let me speak to you, and I'll re-listen to this sermon in 10 or 15 or 20 years when it applies to my kids. It's important to remember that leaving and cleaving is not just something that young people do at a wedding, but it's something that the parents bless at that wedding. It's something that the parents of the young people who have found the one God has given to them affirm at that wedding. We're giving you to each other, to God, to become one flesh, to start a new family 
perhaps some of you have not had the pleasure of experiencing that leaving and cleaving. That's God's design for a healthy marriage, that you would start a new family together with the one that God has given you. Next week's text will deal more with the marriage properly, but it's important for us to see see this, that she expects him to live with her and she with him, and they share their bedroom together. It's It's a picture of commitment and love that's foreign to our hookup culture. Rather than just bouncing from bedroom to bedroom, she longingly seeks the one for whom she has a deep love and brings him to her room for marriage. They become exclusively one another's. Now, husbands and wives, let me speak to you for a moment. If you'll allow me to use this dream found in verses 1 through 5 to encourage you a bit. True love doesn't ever stop longing for its beloved. As one pastor put it, true love is never static. It keeps on seeking after the one that it loves. This woman is out searching for her man, isn't she? Even in her dreams, night after night, she thinks about him. Rather than dreaming about other men, she only and always longs for her love. Her love is not superficial. It is a soul-longing love that goes out into the dangerous night streets to find her man. Husbands and wives, do you still pursue your spouse like this? Do you still long for your spouse like this? Do you dream about him or her night after night? Is your soul passionately committed to him or her? Would you walk 500 miles through the dark night streets just to catch a glimpse of her or of him? I hope that you would. I hope that you would pray to God to enliven the flame of your passion for your loved one more and more every day. That you would experience the same sort of biblical passion and longing that we see here in the Song of Songs. That passion doesn't disappear when the marriage is consummated. It only grows greater. After all, marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church, isn't it? We don't anticipate sitting around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb And having the climax of our experience with Christ in that moment, and then for the rest of eternity, it just gets kind of more and more boring every day for the next millennia, on and on and on. We expect the opposite to be true, don't we? We're going to be in the presence of Christ and see Him face to face, and every day we get to see Him and love Him more and worship Him better and know Him more intimately and deeply and experience all the fullness of joy in the presence of God, our Savior. Marriage is not just a picture of Christ's love for the church in the moment of marriage or in the institution of marriage, but in the day-to-day grind of marriage as you long for lovingly after your spouse more and more as you pursue them, as you get to know them, as you befriend them more and more day after day. Let me encourage you by God's word. Of course, biblical love is exemplified by Christ's love for his church. It's a love that overcame every obstacle, far more than any mountain or hill, any window or lattice or nighttime wandering in the street. Christ's love for you crossed the expanse of space and time 
to find you. Solomon climbed over a mountain and he leapt over some hills. Jesus left the throne room of heaven and the innumerable hosts of angels worshiping him perpetually and all of the glory of the throne upon which he sat and all of the position over top of the created universe from which he looked down on everything that he made and everything that he sustained by the word of his power. And he crossed the divide all the way down to a little manger stall in Bethlehem one cold night to be born as a baby, to grow into a man who would be despised and rejected by men, to suffer and to die, and to overcome the obstacle of your sin and mine and your enmity with God and mine in order to be able to say to you, come away with me, my beloved. Come away to the skies with me. That's Christ's love for his church. He has loved you till the day breaks and the shadows have fled away. So run to him with the same passion that this woman runs through the streets to find the one for whom her soul longs, the one whom her soul loves. Long for Christ passionately pursue Christ more and more every day, growing in intimate fellowship with Him and friendship with Him, knowing Him more and more daily, and desire Him more and more as you consider His great and unfailing love for you, His bride. You'll never have to wander the streets wondering where He is. He's always right by your side. That's the love of Christ for his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our heavenly bridegroom. Would you help us to love him with a love that cannot be quenched, with a passion that cannot flicker and fade, with a desire that can never fully be satisfied because we want him so much that only seeing him face to face in glory will be enough. We ask that you would grant our young people wisdom in their relationships as they pursue marriage and Christian love. We ask that you would help those of us who are married to continue in passion and longing for the spouse that you've given us. And we pray for those who among us are or remain single, that you would encourage them, Lord, to wait to not stir up love or awaken it until it pleases, but to long ultimately for the one who alone can truly satisfy the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.